This is Phantom Electric Ghost, and we're live on the air with Nathaniel Turner for the first time. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So we want to let everybody know this is a featured podcast on the Newsly platform. So if you use coupon code GHOST, you can get one month free premium subscription. This podcast will be on Newsly within a couple hours. And if you use coupon code GHOST, you get one month free premium subscription. So uh, have you check that out. And in addition, this episode is episode 865 of the Family Electric Ghost podcast. We've been on the air since 2016 on Apple Podcast. Uh, that's where we first started. So we're at the episode 875. So uh, we're happy to be, still be around. And thank you again for being on the show. Wow, thanks for having me. Wow, so it's a long time. <laughs> yeah, we kind of started when podcasts, nobody knew what they were. Um, <laughs> so one thing that you mentioned I wanted to kind of get into the title of this episode, we're going to talk about life by backward design. And a lot of people okay. might not know what that actually means. So I think it's the first question I would ask you is that, what is a life by backward design? Sure. The uh, easiest way to explain it is to think about your GPS and to say if you had a destination you were interested in going to and you'd never been there before, most people, you mentioned being a part of Apple podcast, most people would uh, ask Siri, Siri, can you give me directions to wherever? And your GPS would then show up on your phone and start to plot out the, the course that you need to take. And life by backward design is no different. You, know, you simply decide where it is mm -hmm. that you want to go. And someone like me helps you to figure out the, the best strategy and using some tools and techniques to get attended. So you've, um, you call yourself a humanitarian propulsion engineer. Um, and I guess that, that kind of speaks mm -hmm. toward what you were just talking about. Uh, you've also been a TED speaker uh, and you have uh, several books, uh, Raising Superman, Stop the Bus, It's the Jungle Out There, Journey Forward, and the Amazing World of the STEM. And I guess you have an audio version of all of these books or some of them? I have an well, we're doing an audio of the of journals. So each day um, in, in the book journal, journey, journey forward, you'll find a journey journal entries. Each day I do something a little different than the way most people journal. I journal about the life that I'd like to have, not the life that I'm living. So even if I had a great day mm -hmm. today, I don't that, that's inconsequential. My responsibility is to dream about something next. And so that's the way I write my journals. I write them forward. And I've been doing that now for almost five years. And and the co-author of the book has encouraged me to do an audio version of it. So each morning, I now do a version of that uh, to music. Is that on a podcast or is it, where do you present that? <laughs> well, there's just a, a small group of people right now who, who, are, who receive those entries, but we are working on making those available to the public. Okay, cool. Um, so... Basically, like, so you, you, would you call yourself a life coach or a mentor? How would you frame that? Um, I, I don't know. It depends on, I, I think the interesting thing is who I think I am to me sometimes is less important than the people who are around you who need your assistance and how they see me. Yeah. So some people see me as a life coach. Some people see me as just, as just Nate. Um, I don't know. I don't consider myself a life coach. Not at all. Uh, I consider myself 
as you describe a humanity repulsion engineer. I think my responsibility, as is, as is the responsibility of all humans, is to find a way to help the planet be better and healthier than it currently is. Yeah, so it seems like you're some, somewhat of a renaissance person. I can get into that because I'm, I'm an information technology design person. I'm a producer. I'm a musician. I'm a keyboardist, um, artist. So I like to mix like my left and right mm -hmm. brain. I right, like to, right. do, you, know, you, you know, I like to play my Moogs and my Yamaha keyboards and play jazz, but I like to work as a podcaster and talk to people and push an idea forward that I started back with the original podcast was to have expansion. Okay. Because my music is called expansive sound. Okay. And so okay. when I started talking about expansive, what does that mean? Well, expansion means like expansion of the mind mm -hmm. and expansion of your experience with people on the planet, right? So right. you just don't talk to musicians. I started talking to poets and artists and sh shamans and life coaches. <laughs> and I said, well, well, people told me, look, you got to have a narrow focus. And I said, no, because m music is woven through all, everybody's life. And, you know, the Beatles were like life coaches. James Brown was a life coach to me. Mm -hmm. uh, John Coltrane was a life coach to me in terms yeah. of like the mindset. Yeah. And so... I believe that you can intertwine multiple disciplines and art and science and, and, and music and all those things that can be, you know, connected. And I think being a Renaissance person, you, you totally understand yeah, what I'm talking from. I get it. I get it. I get yeah, it. Yeah. So I think that's what you're doing from what I've been reading. Yeah. Well, you. that uh, thank you. We, do we, we, do we use music now, right. In part of the, the journals that people want to hear my voice rather than, just read it. So yeah, now I'm found myself some days feeling like I'm an, an actor in the studio because you can't just read the words. You have to find a way to bring the words to life. So yeah, I, I agree with you completely. Yeah, there's a whole theater to like being like a radio person or a podcaster, or if you're going to give a lecture, mm -hmm. you do have to think about like nonverbal cues and reading your audience and understanding, you know, not just reading off the page. Like if you get in front right. of a group of people, you've got to read that crowd to Absolutely. know if you're hidden or you're not hitting. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. It, feels, it feels a little like old school radio where, where people didn't sit in front of a television. They sat in front of a radio and listened to some show on the radio. It feels a little bit like that each morning when I'm doing the journal. Yeah, it's interesting. Because podcasting, when I first started, was all audio. And now it's shifted to video, mm. but now it's like, even the video, most of the platforms are audio. I'm on like 14 platforms and most of them, 80% of them are audio because people like to be able to have that kind of conversation that had like an audio book. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I find that like, it's, it's a useful way that humans, I think can, can, can gain knowledge is sometimes it's like when you concentrate just on audio, that you don't the visual cues can kind of distract you okay, because right. uh, uh, they end up, you know, into a different focus other than listening to actually what somebody is saying rather than looking what they look, looking at what they look like or the theater of what they're doing. Agreed. So, so one of the things that you brought about, uh, well, you were talking about in your questions uh, that you're ready to answer that I thought was really mm -hmm. interesting is a kind of capitalist fixation on a dogma like generational wealth, which, you know, I'm a sociology major and a political science major, so I totally get where you're coming from there. But um, say, what, what's your what's your take on that, on the idea, the dogma of generational wealth? 
I just feel like we spend so much time talking about that and then without thinking about the, the well, I'll put it this way, to every yin, there's a yang. And and when we're, when so many of us are so preoccupied with the focus of, of having individualized wealth, then we, we undermine the well-being of the collective. And so as an example, if you go to any major city in the United States, you can find some of the wealthiest places and people in the world. You can also find at the same place some of the worst uh, service, um, mentally challenged, uh, poverty-stricken folks in the world as well. And that makes no sense whatsoever. And that's for me, that's because of our fixation with, with capitalism. Yeah, I actually, when I was studying in school, I kind of looked at Calvinistic kind of tendencies of um, what you call the destructive capitalism, mm -hmm. where you have a mindset in some ways that the billionaire or the trillionaire is morally, in the Calvinistic kind of point of view, is a morally superior person to the poor person. Mm -hmm. Because the reason they have that wealth from a Calvinistic point of view is that that makes them a more just person because they're rich right so the problem right. with that is i think the, the society within america has taken that on really to an extreme level mm -hmm. to the point where they'll have the interest of a trillionaire or a billionaire above their own interest above yeah. their neighborhood's interest above their their community's interest and not realize that one person getting all that in the pot doesn't take care of education, doesn't take care of health, doesn't take care of the water, doesn't take care of the environment, doesn't take care of anything. It just takes care of their yacht and their, their jet and all, all those other things, but it doesn't take an idea of some Horatio Alger myth that you're suddenly going to be in a room with him. Really? You're, 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 if you do what he wants, you're going to be in a room with him. I doubt that. Um, right. right. So, so why, why wouldn't you want to do what's in the rather than one person. Yes, because you mean, it reminds me also, you mentioned uh, Calvinism and, and thus with re current religion and the whole idea behind prosperity ministry, which is to say that you are you are blessed. You're, how blessed you are uh, financially is an indication about your connection with God. And again, it's flawed. One of the things I tell people is that there there is no infinite amount of wealth. Wealth is finite. Why is why every year we have a gross domestic product? Like we can tell to a, to a penny how much income is produced in a country or in the world. So there's a finite number. We pretend like that you can that there's this, that is infinite. And so so the idea is that everybody can have a piece of mm -hmm. this so-called infinite infinite pie, but it's not possible. Everybody everybody cannot have a piece of this infinite pie. But to your point, we do stuff that works against our own best interest. Um, I use this example with folks all the time. And I'll say, well, you tell me you care about a community. But when I ask you if you're in a Target or you're in a local grocery store and it's five o'clock and you have dinner and everything prepared for your family by six, and there are these wonderful lines called self-checkout. There are six of them. are working at the cash register where do you go do you do you go to the self-checkout or do you get in the line where the cashiers are and most everyone tells me they run to the self-checkout and i say well i 
then you can't tell me that you care so much about anyone. Because there's someone like my son, who's a computer scientist and engineer, who is running an algorithm that can tell you how many bags of groceries people are willing to bag for free because we're not giving them any discount. And pretty soon you'll come to the grocery store and there'll only be one cashier and there'll only be one person bagging groceries. And before long, there'll be nobody in the grocery store working. And um, th- that's that's what we, we're we all doing. Uh, we're all on that that hamster wheel um, yeah, doing things that are not in our best interest. Well, it's also like I've seen like the idea of um, AI and robotics has gone to the extreme of fully automated fast food restaurants with no yeah, humans yeah. in them at all. Absolutely. And and then to think about that, well, who's who? You know, where who's going to have the paycheck to buy it? Yeah, <laughs> you know, because you got to start thinking about like Henry Ford at least understood that if I pay my workers enough, they can buy the model buy my car. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. And if we've right. gotten to the point where people are saying, well, we can pay them less than what it costs to actually live. I don't know where that idea started to come out because maybe that puts all the money to a certain, you know, into the shareholder and the bondholders and all those people. But like eventually, like if you don't have people who can buy your product, where you, how are you going to make any money? <laughs> yeah, right. You're not right. You're you're not. And there's not going to be anybody willing to do any work for you either. So there's 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 that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like you, you got to get to a point where they, you have to understand um, that, you know, money isn't the the whole uh, goal. You know, to me as, as an artist, I'm an artist, right? So people say, mm-hmm. some people are like, well, I only want to be an artist, if I, right? But like how many artists actually make money? So, so a lot of times like you do art because you love it, right? You do music because you love it. You paint, you do photography. If it happens to make money, that's fine. You become a professional, but most people do it because they love it. Only interest in doing financial gain, then you won't have a lot of interesting things being done because that's not a denominator. (laughs) Yeah, and that when you ask me about backward design, when I'm thinking about backward design, I'm not thinking about an outcome. So I'm thinking more about the process. And you're right, most artists are, are called starving artists for a reason. But they're also, which is also true, a lot of our most famous yeah. artists, authors, painters, et cetera, were people that nobody cared about when they were alive. And it, it took them to die and somebody say, oh, wow, that's, yeah, like that's a pretty interesting way to William Blake. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Like, like William Blake, you know, fear, how fear, Tiger, how he was not known in the Romantic poet era at all. Nobody, but he did something that was interesting. Did his art on acid metal plates. All of his poems are on acid metal plates with all this ornate art. So he felt like it was important enough to not just put on paper, but to put on these metal plates. And then it was found in that way. And then he became like kind of immortalized. But his work was not in his time. But he kind of felt like it should be known. So he made it permanent. In that way, so I think that's what the kind of like an example of a somebody that felt like they 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 were driven to be an artist, and knew that they could get beyond their own time. Yeah, I'm just you just you do the best you can do with it, and I I know I write and um, I write primarily with my son in mind. So almost everything that I've ever written, in some part of what I've been writing, is about about my child. One of the things mm-hmm. I'm I'm mindful of, I, my father's birthday was yesterday. My father passed 
in 2018. But one of the things I'm mindful of is I'll never hear my father's voice again. I don't have any recordings of my father's voice. There's no video of my father to, to go back and look at. There are no, there are no words huh. that he's written anywhere. But now my son, which is cool, whether or not I become somebody that anybody else thinks that matters, my son, maybe my grandchildren, family, some some point will be able to look back. And thanks to you today as an example, we'll be able to say, hey, that's what that's what my father looked like at, at 57. Or this is uh that's my father's voice at, you know, at 43, or here's the letters that my father wrote me when I was two. Um, he'll have those kind of things. And I think to me, that's what art is about. Yeah, it's definitely handing something down. You do it because you love it and you hope people right. uh, can 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 appreciate it. So th there's another question that you had, like, how do you design the idea of a life template mm -hmm. so that they have a chance to succeed? So and it's probably part of the backward design, but um, what what's your idea of a life template? Life template. Maybe give people sure. examples. So the backward design, I'll say this, that it can be done for anyone, can be done for any age. I've had people as old as 40 and 50 ask me, how do I get out of uh, this rut that I'm in? I want to do something else with my life. And you can just simply say, what is it that, what else is it that you'd like to do? You know, most people can do something else. They just don't have a process for how to do that, that new thing. So that's what backward design does. The life template was, was originated from this thought when I was in law school, um, I was finishing and realized that there was no one seeking me to come work for their law firm. And I thought, I've I've gone to school, I've gotten in this, in this debt, and nobody is interested really in hiring me. And the jobs that I have that are offered to me, I didn't have to go to law school to make this money. I was making more money before I went to law school based upon some of these careers. So I thought, well, what, what could I have done differently? As a law as a law student, the, the thing I could have done differently if I could have afforded to go to a place like Harvard or if I had been academically prepared to go to a place like Harvard, then I figured, hey, when you introduced me today, you would have said Harvard lawyer. You would have said the institution that I attended before you said me. So the goal was with this child mm -hmm. we were having was to create a template for this child's life so that the child would meet the academic qualifications of Harvard. Fortunately for us in the application, when we got the application, we found two other things. And one was that this request that Harvard was looking for students who were world citizens. And then the other request was that students who cared for something greater than themselves. And we're like, well, that those other two things really stood out to us. And so mm -hmm. the template for his life became what we call now to raise a child who was going to be intellectually ambitious, a child who was globally and culturally competent, and a child who was humanitarian driven. And that is the life template. So everything in his life, even today, he's 27, is geared around those three elements. Well, it's a very positive element. You know, we'll think about, we were talking about the Calvinism and the kind of capitalism just to make, uh, you know, the, the profit being the primary goal and the measure that everybody looks at without thinking about what you said is to actually do something that actually, you know, helps the rest of society. Mm -hmm. Um and a lot of people don't think about that. When you become a doctor, you think, okay, we're going to help society. But then a lot of times you do it as well. Okay, I want to make the six figures, seven figures too. Right, right. <laughs> it's right. not just about that. It's like I want to be. <laughs> so, like, when people actually are like the type of person that goes and joins the Peace Corps or somebody that goes and spends their time in homeless shelters, you know, making sure, uh, you know, taking care of people or go to a battered woman's shelter or, 
is mm-hmm. an advocate for people who nobody has advocates for. That that like less less like the, those things aren't usually encouraged as heavy as getting one of those like top line positions. Um, yeah. You know, people are like well, that's nice, but like it's not the primary goal. <laughs> right, right. No, you're right. Well, that's that's that that's one of that's one of the goals. And they, you know, academically, he did what we hoped he would do, and um, culturally and competently, he. he uh, culturally and globally, he's done what we hoped he would do. He's multilingual. Um, he's right now he's a fifth year PhD candidate, Carnegie Mellon in electrical and computer engineering. He'll be starting an MBA program in the fall. So, but his objective, the humanitarian portion, is that he wants to find a way to make energy efficient and and low cost for people who have been historically and geographically underserved and underrepresented. Well, that's awesome because like that is going to be a critical and you know, being an in information technology, you know, a lot of people just think that what we do is inherently central and it's not like you get something like blockchain, blockchain actually is kind of carbon. Yeah. <laughs> and there, there's some things that we do with our, with our massive server farms and cloud computing that's actually not good for the planet. Yeah. Yeah, and so yep. trying to add a planet is a cool goal because somebody but it's oh it's IT so it's automatically good for the planet like not necessarily. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All of that data is stored somewhere. It, it is. It, it is very much energy uh, inefficient. Yes. But that's that's what he's been looking at. He's been looking at the grid. Yeah, and if you and, don't say you know, well, I'm, history. You don't have the grid. Yeah, he's been looking at the grid and you know how the grid yeah, because, I mean, hasn't changed since, since most, Thomas Edison. To the grid? Yeah. Yeah, but well, primarily like you know, a lot of the, the the infrastructure for our society is still based on oil and coal, uh, mm-hmm. fire and electricity rather than geothermal, wind or solar. And, mm-hmm. and so that goes into like those server farms, those cloud computing, the, the blockchain calculations are being done against things that are throwing CO2 in the air, which a lot of people don't get. But, that you know, so then when you start to say as a consumer, I want to know if this cloud service or this all, all this Internet, is it carbon neutral? Is it actually using wind power, is it using solar power, is it, or is it just using oil and coal? A lot of times you can't right. get them to tell you, and and the, I think the advocates for the future are just like you need to be, need to tell people what you're doing, right? And it's like, what is this service using for its primary energy source? <laughs> but um, but that's having to think. You have to start thinking out the box, and as a as a person on the planet, you start demanding that you want the information so you can make better choices. Yeah, agreed. If if the if the capitalistic forces that we exist gives us other options to choose from, because that right now, I don't know that we have a whole lot of options. To your point, we can certainly ask about it, but the question is, who's actually really doing it? Yeah, that's the thing. Well, you try to you try to make it transparent, so you know that they are you carbon neutral or not, and then you start having people actually create businesses and say, "Hey, my cloud servers are all." being powered by solar, right? right. And then, or my services are all being powered by the wind. And then people have a choice where if they don't know, it's like, it's like if you don't have 
the label, you don't know if something's sure. organic or has all these chemicals in it or not. Right. So right. it's just being labeled so you can the consumer can actually make a choice. Right. No, I agree with you. So socio-political and geo-economic issues are are kind of tied to the faults and failings of human beings over all over the world, right? And so there's a lot of commonality that that we now see between, you know, some socialist societies and communist societies and capitalist societies. They can all have failings. There's no mm-hmm. kind of magic bullet. But no but you know, some people have always tried to find a magic bullet in one or the other. What I find is like degrees, like even our own society has degrees of socialism in it, social mm-hmm. security, Medicare, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so people are like, oh, this so like sometimes it, 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 it seems to me that it's always a blend of multiple things that actually become what's actually gonna work rather than being on the polar extremes. Yeah, you can also add um, mortgage interest deductions, property tax deductions. You can look at any itemized deduction on your Schedule A on your tax form, and you can also make those part of the social welfare system that wealthier and privileged people get. You can look Mm -hmm. at the way we treat dividends, the way we treat capital gains. You can also look at that. Those are also social welfare programs that we don't really talk about. We think about welfare as if somebody who's on the WIC program but we're not talking about how we subsidize people owning homes, <laughs> large homes, right? We don't talk about how we subsidize the wealthy yeah, yeah. Um, business owner who decides I won't take a salary. I'll just take, I'll just take my, my uh, conversation in stock. I'll never sell my stock. I'll just let it appreciate. And when I need some money, I'll just reach out to my friend who's the owner of a bank and I'll just say, can I borrow against my stock? So I'll write off the loan against it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll write off the interest (laughs) as a business expense. Yeah. Those are all welfare programs. We don't. And then, you know, you got the the middle and the blue collar paying, yeah, paying all the taxes and the super rich find ways to get out of it. And then I would also argue that, like, okay, if you think about, uh, if you think about the military industrial complex that Eisenhower talked about. Um, but the, the idea that it's not the only welfare is the WIC program, a military contractor, and they're getting these sweetheart deals. That's your taxpayer money going to something. Do you really need that? You know, do, did we need to have a plane that cost $200 million for one plane? Like one plane costs $200 million. It's like, why, why should one plane cost $200 million? <laughs> <laughs> right, you know, right. it seems like a little whack, out of whack. It's like it was like, what happens when it crashes? Is just down the drain? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. No, there's a we have social, we have socialism everywhere. We just don't, we just don't talk about it that way. Um, enterprise zones yeah, can be another. Some people another think example. that that's okay. Yeah, because okay. people say it trickles down. Like if you if you, you do stuff if for you the wealthy, empower people. Yeah, yeah. People say if you do stuff for the wealthy, then oh, it, it trickles, trickles down, down yeah. to the poor. <laughs> it doesn't. That that we all know that doesn't really happen. Yeah, when the when the wealthy person we never gets seen TV, that. I, I don't remember ever seeing it because I don't know where they're not two hundred. No, no, I don't. I don't either. And when a wealthy person gets the gets to borrow against their stock. And the bank needs to make sure that that loan is secure. They just simply raise the fees on poor people when we do bank. 
If you put money in a bank and you put a you if you're lucky enough, oh, yeah. you have a thousand dollars in the savings account and you're earning, you know, 0.01 percent. And you then came back later and said, I need to borrow a thousand dollars. Then the bank would charge you, you know, six percent, seven percent, eight percent. Depends on if it's a home or a car at the probably at a minimum seven percent. So they gave you 0.01 percent and yeah. they gave their friend a loan against their their stock. But then they would charge you and charge you a fee because your account size is not big enough and charge you every time you go to an ATM. If you go to one outer network, yeah, it's kind of a, yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a socialized system for a particular group of people. Yeah. And then if you see it, like your, if the bank fails, just before the bank <laughs> fails, the CEO and CFO, they themselves and, and and then they look for the government to bail it out. Yeah. They don't. They don't. They don't call. I don't think. I don't think they want us to call it a bailout. Where's they the? Want us to call. <laughs> what do you call that? I, I, like, what's like if you're if you're doing your fiduciary duty, how do you get a bonus when your bank failed? I never heard of a job where I fail and then I take home a million dollars after I failed. That's a. So what I feel the task, but I get to keep the money. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's that's socialism, right? That's a wonderful, that's a wonderful opportunity to have. You could, and then you'll then you'll teach, you'll lecture to poor people about being financially literate. So poor people will have to take financial literacy courses. And in our schools, we'll want to teach kids about financial literacy. But to your point, you could you could you could find your banks to be uh, insolvent. And no one's talking to you about financial literacy. And then the things to me, same person in the bank gets another job in corporate America as an executive level mm-hmm. when their track record is they fail. Yeah. When, yeah. when they go and look at the mid-level entry, you know, regular worker, if the regular worker was in a chapter 13 and a regular worker had their own sole proprietorship and it went chapter 13. Yep. They probably they wouldn't they wouldn't go and recommend them for the next executive level position. I mean, they they won't get the middle level position because well, you don't know how to manage your money. <laughs> Absolutely, it would show up on your credit report. You you you'd be a complete mess. So yeah, no no way could you do that. Yeah. Yep. But you can continue to keep on getting in the boardroom because uh, I guess well you know you just made a mistake. <laughs> You just made it like it's okay. That's a that's a good, your good old boy mistake. It's okay. You can you can recover from that one. Uh, absolutely. But um, yeah. I mean, like the the I've talked to people where you know it's like America is this and that, and I just point out that there is kind of a caste system within our our structure, and in certain caste you can kind of get away with a lot, and other caste you can't get away with anything, and the degrees of what you are allowed to do. And then some people will tell you that it's the Horatio Alger myth and you're going to get to be Elon Musk or you're going to get to be Henry Ford when there really is no real truth to that. And But you go and you, you buy into it. But right. but you really have to understand is like if, if the regular person has a hard time to get to that point. Not that it's impossible. You can right. become like the new money millionaire. You, billionaire. you could do that, but the chances of it aren't very high. Um, yeah. so either, not that you shouldn't try, 
but you should kind of look at what's overall, you know, I think in my point of view, what is going to help your fellow person and help the planet in the state that the planet's in right now. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you'll probably find a way that you could be very successful for your fellow man. Yeah, when your time is up, I always say that I've yet to hear a read an obituary, um, hear a eulogy, read the final testament on someone's tomb or urn that tells me what their network was. I've 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 yet to see that. I've seen yeah. people talk about the <laughs> the worth of a person's soul was, but I've never heard about network. So it seems to me there's a whole lot of attention focused on something that in the end won't mean as much as people act as if it, it, it will mean. It doesn't, you can't take it with you. Um, I think Denzel said in a speech once about the Egyptians tried it, like to take to take your wealth with you to the tomb. You, you're not taking it with you. So you might as well, to me, do something worthwhile for the planet while you're here with it. I see your point about um, uh, a lot of parents um... Uh, don't realize that their their kids are like victims of the educational system. Um, by like age seven, there, there's a humanity app. And I totally get it because my father, just to tell a story, my father was a, a, a an insurance guy. And his father had been a factory worker. And we lived in Massachusetts in a town called Springfield. And his okay. father wanted him to do better. So he became like an insurance agent. And then, you know, he lived downtown in, in the kind of urban area. And my father, grandpa told my dad that if you want your kids to do better, you need to go live in 16 acres where the suburbs, because then the kids are going to be able to go to the better school and they won't have to be bused because they're actually in the district that has the better. So my dad took that advice and we all, all three brothers, we went to this very suburban school that wasn't used to seeing people like me. <laughs> and we all ended up being able to go, you know, I went to Bowdoin, my brother went to Harvey, went to Brown. But, and these were public schools, but the public schools in that sector had a track record of sending people to really good schools without having to pay money other than your private. But it's like, you know, there weren't a lot of people that looked like me in that neighborhood. Oh, no. Sure. And my absolutely. father, you know, put us in that situation. It was kind of hard. But, but it was a, a, a really forward and kind of like what you're talking about, that mm -hmm. that sacrifice and social comfort actually helped me to where I am today. Yeah, your father was, was backward designing you and your future, using a, a template of some sort as well to change your life. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I don't know how, how old you are. I suspect we're probably not far off in age. I'm 57. Um, but my parents moved to a part of Gary that was was just starting to be integrated. And, and part of that was to give us an opportunity to go to a quote unquote, a, a, a better school. Uh, but today, mm -hmm. the mobility, the opportunity to do that, it's more difficult now than ever for people to, to, to move into a school district. Um, where yeah. where it's a better it's a better school district it's hard harder than ever to to do that so uh, most folks unfortunately where you're born many yeah, people yeah, never they, leave. They, didn't. Yeah. <laughs> they don't they don't well, get, yeah they it don't, was very difficult to leave like, culture i'm sorry i missed i missed what you were saying 
Well, so it was very difficult for my dad to do it because he had the, you know, he grew up with all his friends, his family, mm-hmm. everybody grew up with or in those neighborhoods, like the area of Springfield, Massachusetts, compared to the 16 acres area mm-hmm. of, of Massachusetts, which is a totally different world. And yeah. and it put us in a totally different place. And it's not something that most people felt comfortable doing. Like most of his friends from Mason Square was like, why the heck would you do that? Why would you put you in no? And even if they could, they wouldn't because they just didn't feel comfortable doing it. And so like, in, even though the benefit of it was for us to, to go to the better schools, most people wouldn't put themselves in that. And even now, like you're saying, that the going into that kind of, thing or even higher than they were back in 72 or 70 mm-hmm. i'm 55 it's like in 72 73 when my father did that it was hard but he yeah. had been working in boston and he had earned a bunch of money and he was able to he got his company to pay for the house okay he got a big insurance company to move us from boston to that, that neighborhood and he got them to help buy because he he smart and so even back then it wouldn't have been easy for somebody to do that. My father kind of planned it out. Right, man, yeah, man. Yeah. Your dad, I guess I said, your dad was backward designing. That you 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 already familiar with it. You've lived it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, that kind of, it takes sacrifice, and it takes forethought and planning. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. so maybe like you can talk more about like how do you get somebody in the mindset to kind of do what you do and what my pop did. He didn't even know he felt was a, there was a reason he needed to do it. Yeah, I think the the your your story is a perfect example. Your father is a perfect example. I, my guess is I don't know your dad, but my guess is that your father had these audacious hopes and dreams for his children. And it was those dreams that propelled him to do what he did. The, the, so where I always start with people is just to ask them, what are their hopes and dreams? What are your hopes and dreams? Not just for you, but what are your hopes and dreams for your children? And if you have hopes and dreams for your children, and I believe most parents have those, certainly from mm-hmm. the very beginning. I think the dr- hopes and dreams dissipate because we start to feel like nothing is possible because we live in an environment where we're constantly sort of asked to pursue material items rather than thinking about something that's more than is as i say that that uh can rust or turn into moth but if you can start to think about what it is you hope and dream for your children i think that that's the place where you start that certainly sounds like the place your dad started yeah i think he just wanted to um you know elevate and it's this how you 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 don't want to just be the status quo. With some people, it's hard to just stay current. You know, some people are on that treadmill, and mm-hmm. they just just trying to stay above water is the best they think they can do. My father was shooting for above that, you know, yeah. and so like based on where his dad had been and where his grandpa had been, he shot way higher than they would ever went to, and it was maybe it was what Dr. King had been doing. And you have, you know, my father, when he's doing this, is 72, 73. Okay. You got Muhammad yeah. Ali out there saying he's the greatest. You got the Black Power Movement. You got the like, yeah. Black is Beautiful. You had yeah. this kind of thing that had happened in the society where people were more willing. James Brown, yeah, they were out. Yeah. My I'm dad was I'm listening proud. to James. Yeah. <laughs> <And that laughs> cool. but, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, he had that 
I was hearing that as a little kid. You know, my dad mm-hmm. was playing it. And and, mm-hmm. and so it's like, you know, I'm getting this kind of reinforcement. And my dad, you know, he's feeling positive because he was like in his office. He was the only black guy. And he he had to deal with the consequences of that. And I had to deal with my brothers being the only black boys in a mostly Irish Portuguese neighborhood, mm. which you can imagine what that's like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and we we had to stand up for ourselves. And, uh, you know, you, you can imagine that. But um, so it's like, and my dad didn't have that experience. He was in a primarily, predominantly black neighborhood. But, but you know, my mom and my dad, they backed us up. But we had we had to navigate something we had never navigated, and we had to all mm-hmm. kind of learn how to do it together. But it is hard. Like when you are a trailblazer, you're putting yourself out there, like you're putting yeah. yourself on the moon. <laughs> I think though, I mean, I think though, if you if we look his if we look at at the uh, if we look at the, the presence of uh, we now are African American. We look at the presence of black people, African American, whatever term we decide to use. We've always been a people. That each each parent has hoped for something better than their for the, their, for their children. I mean, our ancestors who were slaves certainly hoped for a day mm-hmm. when their children would be free, and and so it just seems to me that at some point we stop hoping for things to be better for our offspring, and it became solely about what's best for me. I don't I don't hear you telling me your dad's decision was about a decision was best for him. He could have done any number of things. If he had cash in his pocket, he could have done any number of things. No. He probably could have bought some property, been a slumland lord owner in his own community. He could have done any, any number of things. But his vision for his best life was was about his sons. And I think that, that that's something that's lost in our community. Yeah, I think it's like you, you got to have that kind of ability as a guy to know that it's not just about you. It's like, you know, my dad had that idea um, and maybe because his dad, you know, he had, we have uh, two, you know, two uncles and, mm-hmm. and, a, and um, an aunt and he wanted to make sure that his family was doing as, as good as they could, you know, and he worked like, like hard. He was in the Negro and he was a factory worker. He was working like three jobs and doing all this stuff. And, and he kind of showed all that to work. My dad went in the military, and you know, being, getting being an officer in the National Guard, and the discipline. It's like when you have people who are, are working hard, working two, three jobs, you know, in sports, discipline. And mm-hmm. I think it's the like what I've what my grandparents and my aunts and my uncles all point out is the lack of discipline with some people today compared to what they knew. Mm-hmm. The, 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 yeah. the, the rigor that you put yourself under and you don't give yourself a break. You're like, you, you, you continue to do that. And I think maybe when slavery, there was a lot of rigor and people pushed themselves and then there started to become, you know, so much pushback. Some people maybe too much pushback. They don't have, find it hard to do, but you, right. you, you have to keep on keeping on. Like they yeah. used to say, <laughs> like, so yeah. like no, how, right. do, how do you get that rigor back? You know, if, if, if you've been pushed down, it's hard to have that rigor. And I understand that. But like there yeah. were certain generations that seem to have more rigor than others. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't know much about the Springfield, Massachusetts area. I do the is it NBA Hall of Fame? Is that where is that Springfield, Massachusetts? Is that the yeah. NBA Hall yeah. of Fame? Is it? Okay. So yeah. that that's yeah. all I know about Springfield, Massachusetts. 
but I but I do know like in a place like Gary where I grew up, um, Gary was at the time ninety seven percent black. I believe was one of the most segregated cities in America. But but at the time, the people who were around the Jacksons are from right. The Jacksons are from yeah. But people around in Gary then were the community was different, and so today. When I was a kid, uh, doctors, lawyers lived in my neighborhood. Now, my parents were, my father and my mother were just blue collar and white collar, low level employees. But I was around people who could help me see that there was something else for me. Today, I'm, 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 I'm guilty of it. And, I'm, and, I, and I, know, I know a lot of us are. We don't live in those communities. So there is no, there is no one to see on a regular basis about what's possible. You don't see hope. And, and part of having hope is mm-hmm. the ability to have people who are going to be a hope for you. And there's not a whole lot of that in our communities anymore. We all live somewhere else. I think most 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 people who are middle class yeah, middle class don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. We live somewhere else. So that makes it difficult I mean, for those. Of course. I don't know what my dad brought a problem. Can we take those resources? You take yeah. the resources out of the community. You know, Absolutely. it's like kind of like my wife is from Barbados. And okay. Barbados is more common to, to have black people that are doctors, lawyers, engineers, whatever, because it's a black country. Right. But even there, there's there's segments and stuff. But you, you're more likely to know that it's possible mm-hmm. if you're from the West Indies, right. like, Oh yeah, it's possible to be a doctor, be a scientist because you can see it. Right. But if you're in right. an area where you don't see it, I totally get it. Like, it, yeah, you, 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 it's hard to imagine if you never see a black doctor yeah. or black scientist or black, you know, somebody that you you don't have nobody to replicate or to look up to. Yeah, yeah, you're more likely to see a black athlete than you are to see a black engineer than you are to see a black yeah, scientist. Ever. <laughs> yeah, not you likely, yeah. unlikely to see any of that. Yeah, and I mean, you're just looking up to hip hop, and I mean, I'm a musician, I get it, but like my day job is I'm a data scientist, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a designer, I deal with computer okay. science, I design systems, and okay. I've always been frustrated with the lack of people who look like myself because. One thing I used to always run into people is like, oh, well, that's that's um, you know, that's like, that's for not for me. And mm-hmm. it's like, well, you know, you don't know your history, you know, right. Eritrea. Right. I've I, and if you go back in history, where the where does the math come from? from it comes yeah, from the Middle absolutely. East. It comes from like Af- the African parts of the world. That's mm-hmm. that's where math comes from, right? And but if you don't teach that story, you only tell people they can be athletes and musicians, they don't realize that you can be a, a physics person. You could be a data scientist. You could be into yep. chemistry. It's not okay. uncommon for your mind to be able to do that. But when told that you can't, then you believe, you know, and I try to go back to high schools and get kids to get into math. And I tell them the math is the big equalizer. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. no matter what, if you learn logic and math and calculus, nobody can mess with you if you can do it because this country goes outside of this country trying to find people that can Absolutely. do what I do. Absolutely. Every day yeah. we can't find them. Don't do what I do. Absolutely. And if you go and you can't, that's like what your son's doing. That is very rare for people to do. 
because a big equalizer, if you learn that logic, you learn that science, you can you can own your life. You can own what you want to do. You can you're not gonna have a limitation. No, you're you're absolutely right. We have to start, we have to start earlier. I know I was with a group of educate group of seniors who will be graduating, will be our next set of uh teachers in this country. And one of the things I asked them is how many of you are going to do work with OBGYNs, uh, gynecologists, early childhood specialists, and they were like, well, why? I said, because if we don't start helping parents and expecting parents very early understand the importance of making sure that when a child comes to school, a child is ready to do math, not learn to count, a child is, is already reading and is now going to read to learn, we're never going to have a chance. Like the world is moving way too fast. I know my son visited Stanford. Um, he lived in Brazil, played soccer there for a while and came back. I think in 2013, we took a visit to Stanford, mm -hmm. one of the schools he was considering. And we met some students from, uh, the, from Eastern Europe and from China. And each of those students told us they had calculus as third graders. Yeah, they're, they're way a bit. The Wait. problem with our educational system, which I point out a lot of times, it was built for the agrarian industrial age. It Absolutely. wasn't built to build science and engineers and mathematicians, unless you go to St. Paul's or the Pinkerton Academy, like then you get that. But in the regular yeah. system, it's still geared to like where you were going to work on the farm or you're going to work in the in the mill. Right. And right. and I don't understand. Well, I can understand a couple of reasons why it might be that way, but <laughs> but. but it, you, you, what you have to do is you have to, I, I thought outside the box when I was a kid and I grew up like with the video games and the arcades and then, you know, the Texas Instrument computer started showing up and I went and took my paper route and I went and bought a Texas Instrument home PC and I started video games because I used to go to that arcade and I, wow. I said, oh, the Space Invader stuff, what's that? And I said, well, I want to figure out how that works. And I started to go build it by going to the library, looking up stuff, asking my teacher at school, can I get into the into the computer uh, club? And they let me get in. And I was hanging around all these like young hacker kids <laughs> in 78. Right. And they started, I was curious. Wow. So I got into right. it, but it kind of got into it because I was like, you know, I was watching Leonard Nemo and Star Trek and I was interested in that. And it, I didn't care if people would call me a nerd or whatever. Nerd. Yes. You know, nerds make money. Yes, they do. <laughs> so, so it's like, oh, yeah, but you have to be curious. You have to be curious, and you have to not care what everybody else around you is going to think. You know, and and it, maybe it's not cool, but I think it's cool when you when you have have some money. <laughs> well, I was saying, so, so nerds nerds rule the world. You can do with your head. With yes. head. Well, yeah, they, they nerds rule the world for certain. Yes. But it sounds like you had a, a, an exceptional yeah, so the kids childhood. Not be scared. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. but it's kind of like I made it happen. My brother was a lawyer. My other brother went in the military. I decided that I liked science and computers and math, and I was the only kid that decided that. But but you know, my brother became a lawyer, so he still had the head for it. My brother, other brother, became an officer in, in the military, so they still had discipline is the different ways mm -hmm. they went. Um, mm -hmm. But the idea is just to feel uh, that you'd be 
uh, be match up to like or go beyond where my father or my grandfather was. We weren't going to try it. We didn't, you know, my, my grandfather, my pop didn't want us to, they didn't want to be better than we could ever be. They wanted us to get beyond them. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if sometimes people don't don't instill that in their kids because they're like, well, you're never going to get better than me or you're not going to amount. It's like, if you tell somebody they're not going to amount to anything, it's probably not a, a good motivational speech. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that's the opposite of, of, of motivation, right? Yeah, I, I certainly want my yeah. son, I've always wanted him to be be more than me and i know people would say well is he gonna be a lawyer and i'm like i hope god no i hope he's not are you gonna is he gonna take over your financial planning practice i'm like no i hope not i hope he does something much better i don't know what that is and and interestingly enough like the fact that he's an engineer Mm -hmm. was a little bit of a surprise to us i thought he might do something in in some social science or something in maybe writing or some sort but Mm -hmm. When he went to Brazil and played soccer in Brazil, he was in an academy where they always had issues with the energy. And sometimes the internet would work, sometimes the electricity would work, sometimes it wouldn't. And his teammates, many of them were for Brazilian favelas. Mm. So he said, I know exactly what I want to do now. I'm going to be an engineer and a computer scientist. And they were like, okay. Like, but but the point, well, the cool, cool point was that that his life was was developed in such a way. That I call it like the buffet table. So you can be with any, you can you can have anything you want on the buffet table. You can eat on this end where there's peanut butter and jelly, or you could go down to the other end and have filet mignon and caviar. But he was prepared to do whatever he wanted to do. I think that's like that's the thing about the having a life template or looking at life by backward design. I can't determine what someone's going to want to do with their life, but I just want people to have options and not be limited to the things that reduce them. And their opportunities. I like people to have the opportunity to do whatever they want to do and know they're prepared to do that. Also, like one of the things you said, like what do women and men need to do before they become parents? Which I like a lot of people probably need to read up on things or <laughs> make sure that you're in, in a good, you know, get a good position to be there. I mean, it's kind of obvious, but what, what what's your kind of overall advice? Uh, my, the things that people should do when they yeah, uh, my, think about. Yeah, my biggest piece of advice is that people need to have a self-assessment. I, you know, I, I'm a big believer in the tree mm. and the fruit. My grandmother used to say that all the time, that, that the tree shall be known by the fruit that it bears. I think the tree needs to figure out what it is before it starts to think about bearing some fruit. I think too few people think about who they are mm. before they start to, to think about raising somebody else. And that to me, that's critical. Like for men, I'd say, you know, you are uh, an amalgamation. If you have, if you're fortunate enough to have both parents, you or maybe unfortunate, um, you are an amalgamation of your your of your village. If it takes a village to raise a child, it means you have to take a look at the people who help raise you because they poured into you. Sometimes there's some good stuff. Sometimes there's some bad stuff, and you got to re- figure out and regulate which of those things you need to use and move forward. And and too few of us do that. So we say, oh, I beat my children because my parents beat me. Okay. Or, you know, I do this to my children because it was done to me. I turn out okay. Like, really? So I think yeah. part of it is <laughs> really? taking a really yeah, <laughs> taking a really deep look at who we are ourselves before we decide to bring something else or some other person into the plane. 
Yeah, cause I mean, I I became like well, I got married at age twenty seven, and my wife went to my whole look. I went to Bowdoin, and okay. um, I had actually gone through out of and I became very serious about like I wanted a long term relationship. I wanted something serious. I found a woman that was educated, just graduated from Mount Holyoke. She was an older student, had gone back, come from Barbados, and gone back and got her education. So we were kind of in line with each other and we wanted. And then your daughter was born. We got the opportunity to actually live in Japan doing an wow. IT job for two years and from 2004 to 2006. So my daughter went to a Japanese preschool and a Japanese kindergarten. And it was kind of like what my dad had done for me. We, we mm -hmm. were halfway across the world and we got to experience, my daughter got to experience an educational system that's one of the best in the world. Mm -hmm. It taught her to this day, you know, she's 23 and she's like exceptional. And she's an artist and art director and she has like a Japanese motif to her art and she's African-American, she's part Native American. And she mm -hmm. has the ability to like understand, you know, Japanese, Chinese hiragana and katakana and, kanjis and, and stuff so it gave a big edge in terms of like a perspective of being mm -hmm. a you know you know her school was in japan her schooling yes. is a national upbringing that gave her a, 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 to me a leg up like my doing my dad did for me yeah you 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 your dad took you across the city and and, and your you took your child across the ocean yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> It's the same really idea, cool. but we actually thought about it because we, we, we were in the U.S. We were saying, well, how are we going to get our kid a really good education? We wanted to send them right away to like a private institution. That's what we were doing. And we got this opportunity to be in Japan. It's like, wow, we solved it. Because <laughs> <laughs> right from the start, we were in these, uh, we were able to do that. And it's just, even to this day, you know, she's still very much inspired by a lot of the stuff that she learned there. And it gives her like this holistic vision to not just think about things from an American point of view, but from an Eastern point of view, not just a Western point of view, but like to understand the world mm -hmm. from multi-dimensional point of view, which I think yeah. is, is a really good thing to, in the way the world is today to have that. Absolutely. The world is big, but it's also very small, uh, smaller now than it's ever been because we can connect with people anywhere in the world instantaneously. So yeah, that's cool. Does she speak the language? She speak Japanese at all? Uh, well, she was taught when she was very young, she knew a lot. And it, the further away from it you oh. get that she doesn't know, but she does yeah. know the writing and in her artwork. Okay. She uses the kanjis and the and she knows how to read it. And uh, okay. she's always still been interested in anime and manga, so she reads it. So, so she's gotten a really good perspective. And, you know, because that's the first language she learned really is Japanese before English. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Which is... They seem to it, but it's, it's kind of cool to be able to have yeah. that. And, and she was at the age where she could learn it. I had senseis teaching me, and I had to do reports in Japanese and stuff. So it was hard for me to kind of learn it because the way Americans are, we learned, we don't seem to learn language as well. Good. But if you put yourself into a place like Japan, you forced, I had to learn how to tell taxi drivers to go where I want, buy food. Right. The two years right. I was there, by, by the time I was done, I actually was talking because you're in it. If you're living yes. there, you get in it yes. and you learn it because yes. you have yes. to. <laughs> yes. Yeah. People come here all the time and figure it out. We 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 just don't go and immerse ourselves in another society. Yep. 
Yeah, if you ever live like you know another culture, you'll learn the Portuguese, you'll learn the Chinese, you'll learn you know if you've lived there, you, you'll tend yeah. to learn it. Yeah, my son taught himself uh, Portuguese in thirty days. Yeah, he, he already he spoke yeah he spoke Spanish uh, fluently and he learned Catalan and and Spanish mm -hmm. and had a little a little that's awesome a little French I believe he had a little French, but then when he went to went to Brazil, he just. Yeah, he was immersed in it. You don't have a choice. Everybody's speaking the language. Either you you learn how to speak it or you come back home. He, he figured out how to speak it. Yeah. Well, I think it's really good. I think about more Americans should should be, you know, immersed in language. But we have a kind of tendency to not, not think what when a lot of places in the world, you know, they, if you live in Europe, you may know three, four, five languages. You know, you live yeah. in Asia, you might you'll know Chinese and Japanese and, you know, you'll know Thai, you'll know so many different things and people just don't have to because they can get away yeah. with not having to. Right, right. Like right. you could live in Iowa and have to learn English, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it's a, I think it's just a, a really uh, illuminating experience to talk to you because like, you do have a lot of really, I think, important ideas for anybody thinking about you know, having a family or thinking about themselves in terms of their mindset, you know, to have a son's holistic mindset, I think is really important. And uh, I think people should seek out uh, you from your website. I'll, for the people on the audio, I'll go and tell you it's like www.nathanielturner.com. If people click that, what do they find there? Uh, right now, you're going to find a, a website that's under reconstruction. They can't see it, um, but it's a it's a website about all the things we do, books. We have some courses that we're going to be releasing real soon, some courses related to some of the things we've talked about today, um, uh, videos, um, places where you can find the books. Okay. Just, yeah, it's just a pretty decent landing page to find out everything about what, what we're doing at the moment. Landing page. Yep. Well, it's it's, a, it's actually Everything a website doing, yeah. in terms of your, your your type of yeah yeah yeah. So so eventually, when when's it gonna be fully active again? Uh, the the web designer is waiting on me to give them the approval for the second round of edits. I would like to believe it'll be done by the end of the month. I, I, that's my hope. But a lot of that that's is on me. Okay, so. <laughs> yeah, I know how that is. Um. Well, thank you again for being a guest on the Fam Electric Ghost Show. I think we our conversations always go by quicker than I ever imagined. We already hit like the hour mark and uh, it just flies by. But I think it was a really engaging conversation. I want to thank you for being a guest on the Fam Electric Ghost Show. And we will be published everywhere that you know podcasts are. By tomorrow, it will be on the platforms you're familiar with, like Apple, iHeartRadio, um, YouTube, Facebook, Twitch, a bunch of other platforms. And uh, thank you again for being on the on the Family Electric Ghost podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And best wishes to you and your family. Thank you. Have a good night. You too.